So welcome everyone. I'm so thrilled to see you all here on a Friday night at 5 o'clock. That's quite impressive. So thank you. I'm also really pleased to see that there are uh, students from multiple schools at UVA. I think that this is just a great event to bring the schools together. Uh, this issue is uh, dear and near to my heart. Uh, in fact, we debated this in my tax class at Darden uh, in Q1. So looking to you for some questions. I see them on the front row. So I, I, one of the reasons I just have to say that I accepted is this is an amazing panel that you're getting ready to hear from. And I can't think of any place on a Friday night that I would rather be than listening to uh, the wealth of knowledge that you have here at the table. I mean, it is, um, it's quite impressive. And if I spent the time reading the resumes, we would be here all day. So I'm gonna briefly introduce, and uh, just from that, I think you'll be pretty uh, amazed at what you've got before you. So first of all, I'd like to introduce Rob Woodall. He's the congressman from Georgia, the 7th District, which is Atlanta. And he was elected in 2010. And so he's been there for a little while and has lots of experience, especially on the House Budget Committee, as well as, you know, what's great about his experience is he has gone from staffer to chief of staff to congressman. So he's seen the whole thing. And we'll have a great sort of viewpoint on how the system works. So welcome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we also have George Yen, which many of you know. Uh, he is the Edwin S. Cohen Distinguished Professor of Law and Taxation. He came to UVA in 1994, and uh, he doesn't know this, but when I was recruited to come to Darden from the University of Chicago, he was a big bonus, knowing that he was right across the street. Uh, I had seen a lot of his work and heard a lot about him while I was there and was thrilled. And then he found out I was coming, and he, hate, he uh, went to D.C to be the Chief of Staff for the U.S. Uh, Congress, uh, the Joint Committee on Taxation. So I had to wait a couple of years to have him next door. But um, I will say it is, uh, he's been very generous uh, in working with me and bringing me into the law school. So I'm just thrilled to hear uh, what he has to say on this. So we also have Scott Hodges on this end. He is the president of the Tax Foundation. Um, and he has worked in several areas where he have brought about tax reform in 1997, 2001, and 2003. He is a leading expert on tax policy. And he is behind the Dynamic Tax Modeling Project, which thank you on that. Um, very interested. I think it's a really interesting discussion that it's brought up, very important discussion that it's raised on Congress. It, and on the Hill, and so I have to say thank you for growing your foundation. I look at it all the time for data okay. and thinking about how to do my research. So thank you very much for what you've brought. And finally, but not least, okay, <laughs> is Becky Norton Dunlop. She is the Vice President of External Affairs at the Heritage Foundation, and I can't do her resume justice. It's quite amazing, but uh, I will say she served in the White House. She served at the Department of Justice. She served at the Department of Interior, and the list goes on. Uh, she was also Secretary of Natural Resources for the state of Virginia, so she's had not only federal experience, but state experience. Can't forget the states, right, uh, in our discussion uh, of corporate tax reform. So it's not just federal, it's a state issue as well. So I, I could go on and on about her resume and her experience. It's just too lengthy to even discuss. She's an author, and we are just thrilled to have you all here. So I will turn the program over to our distinguished panelists, and 
I uh, ask that you maybe take 10 minutes, talk about, um, you, sort of present your ideas, and then we'll move forward from there. Start at this end? Well, sure. Okay, great. Why not? Why not? Why do we want to reform the tax system? There are lots of reasons. Um, there's equity reasons. You know, a lot of people are concerned about inequality, and so they see tax reform as a way of addressing inequality. Um, there's simplicity. We all know the tax code is an absolute disaster. It's a mess. Um, so there's a lot of desire to simplify the tax system. Abs you know, when we start adding up uh, the cost of the compli com complicated tax system, their estimates range from over $160 billion a year in lost productivity or just simply the cost of, of uh, complying with our current tax code. So a simpler tax system would be good for the economy. Uh, there's revenues. A lot of people feel that uh, the government uh, should be getting more revenues, and they see tax reform as one way of, of achieving that goal. And then there's economic growth. Uh, we all know the, ec the economy is underperforming right now. Uh, wages are stagnant. Uh, investment is uh, stagnant. The economy is, is well below par, and they see tax reform as a way of in in improving that. And I, to be honest with you, when I look at all the different ways to, to uh, reasons to reform the tax system, Growth is number one. After all, I think if you look at it and think about it, growth solves all those other problems that we were talking about. It solves inequality, solves revenues, uh, makes the tax code uh, simpler, et cetera, and we get um, uh, a, a better uh, society overall. And so how do we get to growth? And I think there are kind of some rules of thumb. Well, first of all, we need to move the tax. It's, it's part of it is getting the tax base right. And part of doing that is moving away from an income tax base to a consumption tax base. And I think that's what a lot of the discussion is going to be about. But there are many ways that you can get there, get from here to there. Uh, flat tax is one way. Uh, um, uh, 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 the fair tax is another way. There's the X tax. And I think uh, George will go into a lot of those different things. Um, and there, there are kind of rules of thumb on how you can get from here to there. Um, one is to reduce tax rates. That's that's key thing uh, uh, that I think any tax reform needs to do because you want to minimize the amount of taxation on something. Um, two, you need to minimize the number of taxes or the taxes on uh, capital and uh, savings. Uh, essentially, what we want to do is move toward a neutral tax system, a neutral tax base. Uh, taxes really shouldn't get in the way of success. They shouldn't. Uh, be part of our decision making either as individuals or businesses. And so by reducing tax rates, reducing the amount of taxation on capital and savings, you do a lot of that. So what does that mean for individuals? Well, for individuals, uh, not only does it mean lower taxes on our wages, but it means uh, lowering taxes on our savings or eliminating taxes on our savings. Um, right now, savings is, are double taxed. Uh, often, see, what we have happen is that when every time we save, uh, and we get the benefits of those savings, uh, we're taxed on that, taxed on the interest, we're taxed on capital gains and dividends, and that's um, uh, really uh, economically harmful. For corporations, what this means is um, essentially taxing corporations on their net profits, not on their gross receipts. And right now, um, t t corporations are, they have to um, expense uh, thing, or they have to um, uh, depreciate uh, their cost of their investments over time. And from an economic perspective, that's extremely harmful. So the more we can move toward full expensing, the better off that we are, the more economically efficient that is. It means um, uh, moving to integrating the personal and corporate income tax. Right now, 
corporate income is taxed twice. Uh, we tax it at 35 percent uh, at the corporate level. Uh, that's the federal rate anyway. That happens to be the highest corporate tax rate in the industrialized world. Uh, in fact, when we add on state rates, um, the U.S. taxes corporations at the third highest rate in the world, not just the industrialized world, but in the world. Only Chad and the United Arab Emirates have higher corporate tax rate than does the United States. So we certainly want to lower those corporate tax rates. But we tax corporate income at a second level when we tax their profits at the individual level, both dividends and capital gains. And so um, if you move toward a neutral tax system, means eliminating that second layer of tax. And we, so we'd want to do that. We also want to move toward an, a, a territorial system for, for uh, uh, corporations. And that means uh, eliminating the double taxation that we have on their foreign earnings. Right now, U.S. corporations earn money abroad. They pay taxes to France or Canada or Germany or whomever. But then when they try to bring those profits back to the United States, we tax it a, tax it a second time at the highest rate in the, internet, in the uh, industrialized world. So those are some key rule of thumb in moving toward um, uh, fundamental tax reform. And we have uh, a great experiment going right now at the presidential level as all these different candidates, especially on the Republican side, are recommending various tax reform plans, some which meet these, uh, these rules of thumb and some don't. And we've had the opportunity at the Tax Foundation to model and score all of those tax plans using our dynamic tax model. And it's been a very interesting process to see how all of these different candidates have gone about trying to get to pro-growth solutions and yet keeping equity in mind, keeping tax revenues in mind, and keeping uh, simplicity in mind. These are all big challenges. The problem is you can't have all of them. You have to pick and choose what's, what's a bigger priority for you. And so uh, there, right now there are seven different uh, tax reform plans that the candidates, or seven different candidates, have put out there. And we've been able to model all of them. Interestingly enough, they all produce a significant amount of economic growth. Uh, in fact, double-digit growth when you look at it over the long term using our dynamic tax model. Uh, the plan that um, produces the largest amount of economic growth is uh, Marco Rubio's tax plan. So what makes it interesting? What makes it pro-growth? Well, first he dramatically cuts corporate and personal income tax rates. Uh, it cuts the corporate tax rate to 25%. Interestingly enough, he also cuts the tax rate for uh, what we call pass-through businesses or uh, privately owned businesses to 25%. He eliminates capital gains and dividends taxes, so he's either what you might call integrating the corporate tax and the individual tax systems, eliminating that, that second layer of tax. Uh, and um, he moves to um, sort of a universal savings uh, plan. So if you save uh, money today, you don't get taxed on it tomorrow. And uh, he, uh, generally speaking, uh, lowers uh, personal income tax rates across the board. Similarly, the Bush plan uh, uh, is not quite as dramatic as that. He does cor uh, cut corporate tax rates uh, down to 25%, cuts individual tax rates down to 28%, moves to full expensing for uh, corporations, moves to a territorial system, and so forth. All of that is pro-growth. And then you have a couple of plans that really go to the next level and fundamentally change the tax system. And those two plans in particular are the plans by uh, Ted Cruz and Rand Paul. Both do something rather interesting. They replace our current corporate income tax 
and payroll taxes with a, uh, what they call a business activity tax, uh, otherwise known as a value-added tax. Uh, in, in tax geek world, it's called a subtraction method VAT. So businesses would take their gross profits, um, eliminate or uh, subtract uh, their total investments, subtract uh, the, the cost of goods sold, and essentially pay tax on the difference. And that is their net profits uh, plus their payroll. It's a very efficient tax, raises an awful lot of money, and because it provides full expenses, it's also extremely pro-growth. And then both of those plans limit or uh, dramatically reduce uh, tax rates on individuals. Uh, Rand Paul reduces the tax rate to 14.5%, and uh, 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 Cruz uh, reduces the individual rate uh, down to 10%, pretty dramatic. Uh, so those are different ways in which you can get from here to there. And, uh, you know, I could talk, I don't want to, uh, well, I could spend time on Trump's plan, but it's kind of a silly plan. Um, he has no idea what it does, so it, and, uh, um, it knocks half of all Americans off the tax rolls. Um, it's, it's a $10 trillion tax cut over 10 years. Uh, but I should point out that all of the plans, we talk about revenues, uh, all of the plans throw out uh, revenue neutrality. Uh, they all are very large tax cuts. Uh, either, uh, and even when you measure them on a, on a, on a, on a uh, uh, dynamic basis, uh, they tend to run from a trillion dollars in, in net tax cuts over 10 years to as much as, well, in Trump's case, $10 trillion. Now, I will say uh, th there's one plan that we've just modeled, and that is the fair tax. And there's only one candidate that has um, uh, proposed that, and that's uh, um, Governor Huckabee. And the fair tax is, uh, can be a very pro-growth plan, theoretically. And we ran it through our model, and it produces about 12% additional growth over 10 years. However, I don't think it's a very practical plan. I know uh, the congressman's going to disagree with me on this, but that's why we're here, right? <laughs> uh, and I, and I, I debated his predecessor, uh, Congressman Linder, many times before on this. But from a practical standpoint, the fair tax really doesn't stand up. One, uh, we've just modeled this, you need a rate of about 40% on uh, sales in order to do all of what it plans to do in terms of replacing in individual income taxes, uh, payroll taxes, and so forth. And two, um, it uh, um, assumes that there's going to be no avoidance, and there would be a lot of avoidance. Anybody who's lived in Europe with a value-added tax? There you go, one person at least. Well, my mom is uh, an expat. She lives in, in, uh, in uh, Europe. And when she and her husband were getting um, uh, bids on doing some remodeling in their home, they got two bids. They got a, value, a, a VAT bid, and they got a cash bid. And because they were in Germany at their time, there happened to be a 20% difference between those two bids. Which one do you think they chose? They chose a cash bid. And so when you have very high rates on, on sales or value-added taxes, at a certain point, you get a lot of avoidance. And I think that's what would happen with, the, um, the, with the, uh, the fair tax. And I think a lot of people would end up incorporating so they could buy wholesale. Uh, Costco would turn into a wholesale outlet or a, a co-op. We'd all join the co-op so that we, we could pay, um, you know, basically wholesale prices rather than retail prices. So there's a lot of practical things that I think uh, make a fair tax, you know, theoretically possible, but practically impossible. Uh, and so at the end of the day, I tend to be a very much of a flat tax plan, uh, uh, advocate 
um, when it comes down to tax reform. So I'll kind of leave it at that and let my colleagues then uh, comment on some of these other plans. Thank you, Professor. <laughs> the, the nod. If, if anybody's thinking about what they're going to do with their second uh, career after you go out and grow the economy, I would encourage you to look at all the other work going on at this table before you take the work that uh, that I have uh, going on at this uh, at this table. Uh, if you're running a think tank as as uh, as Becky and Scott are, you can move the needle, uh, and they do move the needle. Uh, if you look at what the Tax Foundation Heritage does uh, in Washington, uh, it it matters. Uh, decisions get made differently because of the work that they. Uh, that they do, and, and we would end up with a worse result for the country without it. Uh, George, not just is he here uh, uh, creating uh, brighter uh, minds for the future, but when he ran the, uh, the Joint Committee on Taxation, that's the group that scores every tax proposal. Uh, anything that has to do with revenue, the Joint Tax Committee scores it. So if I come up with a brilliant uh, plan, and I have, uh, and George goes and scores it and decides it's slightly less brilliant, uh, either the guy who got a million votes back home gets to be right, or the fellow who got appointed for an uh, indeterminable period of time gets to be right. And the answer is George gets to be right. It does not matter what Ted Cruz says. It does not matter what Marco Rubio says. What Georgian says ends up deciding uh, the debate of the day. And that's incredibly uh, powerful. Uh, pick uh, elected office last uh, if, you're in the, if you're in the market to change the, change the world. But watch what's happening uh, with elected office today. It's an incredibly populist movement we have going on uh, now. And I want to talk to you about the fair tax uh, from a populist perspective. Uh, we wrote two books uh, on the fair tax uh, last decade. Both of them hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list, uh, not because they are a book on tax policy. George may have written a book on, on tax uh, uh, policy. Uh, there, I'm sure there's some textbooks floating around uh, the UVA campus. Uh, they're not hitting uh, number one. It hit number one from a populist perspective. What can we do to make the world different tomorrow than it was yesterday? And what you know is the power to tax is the power to destroy. Right? Something happens, even to conservative Republicans uh, like myself. You get inside the Beltway in Washington, D.C., and you suddenly decide you're the smartest guy in the room. For Pete's sakes, a million people voted for me. I must be brilliant. And if only you will live your life the way I want you to, you will be so much happier. So much happier. For example, uh, we could create, through an income tax code, a value-added tax code, however we want to do it, a program that subsidized all the blue and white apparel that you would like to buy. Anything you want to buy in blue and white, we're going to get you a tax credit on that and make sure that didn't cost you much money. But if you're shopping in the orange and blue category, oh, no, we're going to, we're going to have to raise the tax on that. Right? We can have everybody here in Duke Blue Devil colors by this time next year through the tax code. Right? <laughs> through the tax code. We can do this. The fair tax is one of the only proposals out there that says we don't want Congress in the business of helping you figure out how to live your life. State governments can do that if they want to. I drive an electric car in Georgia because the state government gave me a tax credit to buy an electric car in Georgia. Right? I, want, I want Mother Earth to be as clean as anybody, but the tax code manipulated my behavior. If you want Washington, D.C. to be able to control the decisions that you make, keep an income tax in place. It was a flat tax when it got started. Right? It was only going to be that, you know, that, that small percent on guys who in today's dollars were making just over $6.5 million a year, because those are the only guys who ought to have to pay income taxes, was the tale we told uh, at the passage of the 16th Amendment. We're not there today. Ronald Reagan took it back down to a really flat place in 1986, but we've come back. It uh, didn't take but 20 years to, to reverse that, uh, that effort. 
from a populist perspective, uh, I can either tax what you earn or I can tax what you consume. The truth is, if you're living next door to me in the same trailer that I'm living in, I don't care how much money you're making. It's when your Maserati's in the driveway and your motorhome is sitting there next door and your kid is on a scholarship to, uh, to goodness knows where because you look impoverished when you fill out your tax forms, right? Because you got no money left in the bank. We, we compete against each other not based on productivity, uh, not based on how much we're saving, but uh, based on how much we're consuming. The entire tax code supports that consumption today. From a populist perspective, folks worry about the IRS. Uh, it's uh, incredible to me that the Justice Department uh, decided not to pursue anything in the Lois Lerner uh, case, but that was the decision the Justice Department uh, made, and the IRS knows more about me than I'm willing to tell my closest family member. And to be clear, they know more about you too. I don't want you to think that you're, you're avoiding that. We know more about you from a government level because of the tax code than you would be willing to tell your family. When we shift from an income tax to a sales tax, the individual American never has to deal with the tax man again. I want you to think about that. If it's an income tax, I have to know how much you make and from where you make it. It does not matter how flat it is. It does not matter how few exceptions there are. If it is an income tax, I have to know as a government official how much money you make and where you make it. And if I know those two things, the temptation to come in and fiddle with that code, the, the, the temptation to come in and help you live your life better will be never ending. We'll be right back in this conversation about a flat tax again in, in another 20 years. Listen to the concerns that, that Scott laid out for you because he's absolutely right. Again, Tax Foundation, amazing group that does amazing uh, work. Pay attention to what they do. He's absolutely right that tax avoidance and tax cheats are the two biggest uh, challenges we face when it comes to revenue. Go look at some of the experiments you've seen in Eastern Europe post the fall of the Soviet Union where folks collapsed their tax codes, simplified their tax codes, created reasonable rates, and had compliance go up. The higher the rate is, the more suspicious I am my, my neighbor's not paying their fair share. The more exceptions and exemptions there are, the more suspicious I am my neighbor's not paying their fair share. The easier it is to comply with, the more willing I am as an American consumer to comply with it. Turns out, in the retail goods section, for example, that about 40% of all sales in America happen at the top 100 institutions. Walmart's number one, Kroger's number two, the list goes on from there. The top 400 institutions uh, make about 50% of all the retail sales uh, in, uh, in America. The top 4% of retail institutions uh, make about 85% of the sales that go on in America. Walmart has no incentive to cheat. Now, Walmart does not want to be turned into America's largest tax collector. They do not. National Retail Federation does not want to be responsible through their members for collecting America's tax code. That's absolutely true. But to improve compliance, the compliance that's the greatest today is withholding. Milton Friedman said the worst mistake he ever made was not abolishing withholding after he created withholding for World War II, but for all of income that is withheld, we have a very high compliance rate because we take your, your money before you get your money. It makes it easier for us to keep our hands on it. Uh, Walmart, Kroger, Target, no incentive uh, to cheat uh, in, that, uh, in, in that respect. Compliance rates higher because we're dealing with professionals doing that. Audit rates 
easier. Right now, if you're at the IRS, you have to worry about about 100 million American families uh, to go out there and, 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 and audit. That's not just your families. Now you got to get into your S-Corps. you got got to get into your C-Corps, your partnerships, on and on and on and on. I want to reduce that uh, to businesses selling retail. Uh, you reduce the points of compliance easier to comply with the code. Populist perspective. The only person who can't change their tax habits are people who work for wages. Right? My tax professor said, Rob, I wish tax problems on all of you because only rich people have tax problems. Right? The guy who can't change is the guy working for wages in America. Turns out it doesn't matter whether we had rates uh, upwards of 90% as they were in the pre-Kennedy years or down at 28% as they were in the Reagan years. It doesn't matter what the top marginal tax rate is. America's only willing to give you just a little less than 20% of GDP in taxes. Turns out if you're rich, you can hire a good attorney. Right? Turns out if you're smart enough to make some money, you're smart enough to move your money around and have your income come in the way you want to have it uh, come in. But the biggest costs we have in America today are not national security costs, they're social welfare costs. And so the largest tax that 80% of American families pay are not their income taxes, it's their payroll taxes. You've seen the 15.3% get sucked out of your paycheck uh, in, in FICA. Because we have that on the income side of the ledger, we now have to export our social welfare costs to the world. Scott's right. We're not competing with Chad and the UAE uh, when it comes to worst uh, tax codes in the, in, the, in, in the world. Yes, we have the benefit of being number three, but those guys aren't stealing jobs from America. It's our European friends uh, where the decisions are being made. Do we build in Germany or do we build here? Do we build in Egypt or do we build here? Do we build uh, in the Philippines or do we build here? I export my social welfare costs when workers get taxed. I export my social welfare costs, and I can't compete globally when we do that. I don't want to compete on having the dirtiest air in the world. I don't want to do that. I don't want to compete on having the lowest wages in the world. I don't want to do that. I want to compete on having the best tax code in the world because businesses can move anywhere that they want to move for their corporate headquarters. Time and time again, as you look at some of the proposals that are out there, you're going to see folks wanting to reduce corporate rates to 20 to 25%, somewhere in the mid-20s. It puts us right in the middle of the pack for the world, right in the middle of the pack. We can compete there. But I don't know when it became an American idea to compete to be in the middle of the pack. I don't know when that became the American philosophy. Let's be mediocre like everybody else. I want to be the best. I want us to be the most attractive place on the planet to do business. It is hard to do it through environmental regulation. It is hard to do it through labor regulation. It is easy to do it through the tax code. We can be the very, very best. But when I talk to CFOs of Fortune 100 companies, they say, Rob, I can't endorse the fair tax. That's just silly. Right? It's just never going to happen. It's too big. As you're looking around, as you're looking around uh, at the presidential uh, race this cycle, know this. Tax reform will not happen for the United States of America if it is dependent upon Congress. It requires presidential leadership. They laughed at Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, uh, and it took years to pull it off. Ronald Reagan sold it every single day, as did Tip O'Neill. The partnership is vital, but presidential leadership is essential. Can't happen without that leadership. Find that person that you think is going to go out there and sell it. And know this, for as hard as it is to do tax reform, there's no upside to a member of Congress co-sponsoring the fair tax, zero. It's a 23% sales tax on everything. 
So the negative ad that gets run in the, in the campaign commercial is Woodall wants to raise the taxes on grandma's drug by 23%, and you know what? They're right. They're right. Grandma's going to be advantaged. I'm going I'm to make grandma whole. Grandma's going to have more consumable income than she has ever had before, but the negative ad is right. There's no upside to doing it unless you believe that it's going to give American workers a chance that they do not have today. And as you and I sit here tonight, Friday night, 5 o'clock, and again, I share the professor's uh, concern for why uh, you all have decided to come and save America tonight. I'm grateful to you for it. <laughs> there is no fundamental tax proposal, uh, reform proposal in Congress, not one, that more members of Congress have added their name to than the fair tax. As we sit here tonight, uh, 81 uh, members of Congress have said, uh, run that negative ad against me, it's okay because I'm going to go out there and tell you why I'm standing up for American families, not selling American families down the river. Uh, I appreciate you all putting together a forum like this tonight, Professor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you mind if I go to the podium? Oh, you, you can go wherever you want. Wherever I want. Yes. As long as we can hear you. <laughs> well, thank you for uh, having this great uh, event. Uh, I do work for the Heritage Foundation, and I'm very familiar with the Federalist Society, but coming tonight and getting to know the Adam Smith Society is a real treat. And, of course, UVA has such a great reputation. Whenever you come down here, you're always in the company of outstanding professors and students. I have these two books with me that Heritage produces, and I'm going to refer to them. Uh, I hope you'll take a look at them afterwards. One is the Heritage Guide to the Constitution, and it goes through the Constitution clause by clause, and we had a constitutional attorney write an essay, what did the founders intend when they wrote this? Uh, obviously, when it comes to the 16th Amendment, it wasn't the founders of the country. Uh, but there's an excellent uh, essay in there on the 16th Amendment, and you can see how complex things were even at that time. Uh, but I think you'll find that interesting. And then the Index of Economic Freedom if you're interested in how tax policy affects the rest of the world, this is a good tool. And what you find when you think, when you look at the index of economic freedom is that the countries that rank mostly free or free are the countries where there's uh, the highest per capita income for individuals. So if you do care about raising the, the uh, ship for all individuals, uh, looking at what's going on around the rest of the world uh, is very instructive. Now, my uh, task tonight is to talk uh, and be an advocate for the flat tax. And uh, part of the reason I like to stand behind the podium is because I'm shorter than the rest of these people, and I like to see all the way to the back of the room. Uh, so thank you for being back there, too. Uh, the, the idea of the, uh, the a flat tax is essentially one of fairness. Uh, that sounds a little a bit odd, perhaps, following the congressman who gave a, an excellent presentation. Uh, but the idea of the flat tax is, uh, starts, I think, from our perspective with the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence states that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Now, that was an exciting concept when our country was founded. Uh, and we at the Heritage Foundation think that today this concept about all men being created equal should also apply to our tax system, not this up and down stuff and, and uh, unequal stuff. 
Uh, as it stands, the average middle class uh, worker today will pay roughly 25% of their income in federal taxes. Uh, and the average CEO, someone who's running a large corporation, is up between 35 and 39% uh, of their, uh, in, uh, their, their income in taxes. Now, some people might say, well, this is fair. I mean, after all, the uh, successful people of America uh, are not average Americans, and so they should pay more of their income in taxes. Uh, but when you think about the definition of the term fair, the, the practical definition of the term fair, it is to, to means without cheating or trying to achieve unjust advantage. And that's the idea of the flat tax. It's to allow people to pay a tax without seeking to cheat or without anybody getting an unfair advantage. Now, we know in America that there are some, country, some companies that make excellent products. I think of Apple. I was talking to someone earlier. Uh, Apple's kind of a new company when you think about it, but it has what? Great creativity, great production, great marketing, and it's now a very successful company. Some companies just have excellent marketing. Their stuff might not be all that great, but they're excellent at marketing. And uh, some people are just geniuses, and so they come up with some really unique idea that may be a one-shot wonder, but it makes them a millionaire. That's a great thing. These are all advantages in a free market economy. And so when, when we think about this, what, uh, what a fair tax system does and what the tax system of today does is it actually punishes people who are successful, who are creative, who are innovative, who actually make more money because what they're doing is excellent and they're doing it very well. I asked my uh, uh, executive assistant, Javier Martinez, uh, to give me a good example and he came up with this one. I hope you all connect with it. Pro, pro athletes. Uh, he said, uh, is it fair that LeBron James makes more money than J.J. Redick? Now, I know who LeBron James is, but unfortunately I'm not, a, I guess, a big enough fan to know who J.J. Redick is. But I know that they're both basketball players. And, of course, what we know is that they're both successful basketball players, they're, they're, you know, very well paid in the professional sport. But what we do know is that LeBron James make a, makes a heck of a lot more money than J.J. Redick. He's more valuable to his team, it seems, than J.J. is to his team. Now, it's important to keep in mind that they're both men, both created equally, but they have different abilities. And they're have different values to their prospective teams. So uh, what we find out is that LeBron James makes a whole heck of a lot more money because his value to his team is worth more than JJ's is to LA. Now the question in my mind is, just because LeBron James makes more money because he's more valuable to his basketball team, is it fair that the federal government should punish him by making him pay a greater percentage of his income in taxes? I think not. I think not. And so one of the questions we in the flat, in the flat tax community ask, is it fair to switch to a fair tax system 
Is that really the right answer uh, to our tax conundrum? Well, a point was made tonight by the congressman that it might eliminate the IRS. Well, that, that would be a good thing. But it would require a lot of changes in law and regulation for the collection of the taxes that would be required to be collected under the fair tax. Uh, and we know that, as he said, uh, people who would be required to collect those taxes aren't interested in being in the, collect, in the tax collection uh, business to a greater extent than they're already uh, in it. And that's the businesses large and small. Large businesses might not object so much, but it would be a burden on the small businesses. So we would argue that the flat tax is actually more fair for the American people. And Steve Forbes, who you probably all know, particularly those who are in the Darden School would know about, Steve Forbes, whose family started, and he is the chief publisher of Forbes magazine, has written a lot about the flat tax. And he makes some points about the fair tax that I think are worth considering tonight. Uh, first of all, he talks about how the tax rate would have to be very high in order to compensate for losses in income and payroll tax revenue. And we heard that concession from the congressman tonight, and we know that that's true. And it would discourage consumer spending and harm the economy at large, uh, we believe. Secondly, it would definitely require complicated regulations and time-consuming paperwork, both of which are very costly in terms of the productive power of the American people. These complicated laws and regulations and paperwork would apply to individuals who would have to make substantial changes in the way they do business in this tax world, also on businesses. And the great harm, as I mentioned, would come on small businesses uh, who would actually, it would require them to make a greater adjustment and it would probably cost them substantially more uh, to make this adjustment than it would large businesses who already have uh, large bureaucracies to deal with these kinds of things. Thirdly, the fair tax operates under the understanding that the government, now keep, this is important, the government would be trusted to pay itself taxes on its purchases. And keep in mind, our governments at all levels are making huge purchases out there. My guess is, of course, they would be really into the tax avoidance process and maybe a little tax evasion to boot because they're not interested in paying, competing with you and businesses to pay the same amount of taxes that you pay if a fair tax were implemented. And finally, if, uh, Steve Forbes talks about uh, the 16th Amendment, which I think is a very important consideration when we think about the fair tax. If we did not repeal the 16th Amendment and, and implemented a fair tax, even if it was a good fair tax, the problem would be, just as the congressman alluded to when he talked about Congress's uh, inability to deal with a lot of these issues uh, in, a, in a way that's good for the American taxpayer, the likelihood that we'd see, we would see both a huge increase in sales tax and then sneaking along there, higher income taxes to boot. So we would be hit from both an increased sales tax and an income tax, which is not going to be good for the American taxpayer, let alone the entrepreneur or the business people. Uh, 
This is the kind of challenge that you face when you move, when you would make such a drastic change in the tax system. Uh, now, the benefits of a, of a flat tax, I would argue, is that would, it would provide an immediate benefit to the American economy. If you just put on a flat tax, and Steve Forbes argues for 17, I'm flexible. I was saying to the professor earlier, in the early days of this country, the idea was, how much money do we need to have the federal government do what it's supposed to do according to the Constitution? You decide that. And then you say, now let's go out and collect those taxes. Today, unfortunately, in Washington, D.C., and in many colleges and university classrooms, everyone talks about how do we raise enough taxes to pay for the government we have. That's not the way to think about it. So when you think about a flat tax, you need to think about how do you put together a flat tax that is simple and, yes, fair, and provides the taxpayer with the benefits and the federal government only with the money it needs to do what it's supposed to do. Well, part of the way you can do that is provide for generous exemptions for adults and children. Uh, you, you can make sure that the individuals who are earning the money keep more money in their pockets to make decisions about how they want to spend that money rather than sending it to Washington uh, to make sure that Washington is happy, which they almost never are unless they're getting more and more of our dollars. We must also eliminate double taxation, which is also unfair. And Scott Hodge uh, referred to this. Uh, we need to have a flat and simple tax that reduces the amount of money coming out of the pockets of the American worker, the American citizen, the American taxpayer, and that no taxes are double taxed. We need to make sure that taxes are, uh, consumption taxes are only taxed once. We want to free up capital so we can grow the economy. Again, tax, uh, Scott made the point about how our economy is very flat. I mean, very flat is an understatement. I mean, People who are graduating from college these days aren't sure they're going to be able to find employment. We need to have the economy grow again, and the way to have that happen is to make sure there's more money out there for investment in entrepreneurial efforts and in expansions of companies and in new investment to make sure that people have the opportunity to have jobs if they, if they want to work. Uh, now, I would say that uh, the flat tax is not only a fair tax, but actually, if you like the idea of a progressive tax, it's actually progressive. What do I mean by that? Well, you earn more, you pay more. That's the idea of a progressive tax. They want people who earn more to pay more. Well, with a flat tax, if you earn a million dollars and you're paying 10% or 17%, you're paying more taxes than the person who earns $100,000. Now, uh, Scott also talked about the Tax Foundation's work on these, uh, these uh, presidential campaign uh, tax plans, but uh, Senators Rubio and Lee did offer a tax proposal in this current Congress that has tax brackets at 15 and 35 percent with a large refundable personal credit. This is a start in the right direction. This is a kind of policy that we can put on the table and have a debate about it. And, a number of uh, economists who have been uh, very distinguished in their careers have talked about 
the, the benefits of a flat tax. Alvin Rabushka from Stanford University, um, uh, of course, Milton Friedman, uh, who was mentioned earlier, uh, has spoken of the, his regret that he didn't get rid of the income tax after uh, the war was over for which it was implemented. Hong Kong, which put in a flat tax, is the freest economy in the world today. Uh, Russia and Ukraine have both implemented flat taxes, and their economies have grown. Uh, Russia has a different problem. You can't have crony, cronyism if you're going to have a fair and honest tax system. Uh, Gary Becker, who's a Nobel Prize winner, uh, talked about uh, uh, the flat tax, and he talked about a 23% flat tax uh, as bringing in the same uh, revenue as the current system, uh, but then it could be reduced then it could be reduced. And uh, he talks about 16%. So you have economists out there now thinking about different ways to achieve this fairness in a flat tax uh, and uh, allow our economy to grow because people keep more of what they earn. Hayek, another great economist uh, uh, who wrote The Road to Serfdom, he, he had, has a quote that I wanted to share with you. Unlike proportionality, Progression provides no principle which tells us what the relative burden of different persons ought to be. It is no more than a rejection of proportionality in favor of discrimination against the wealthy without any criterion for limiting the extent of this discrimination. I mean, it used to be the dream in America that everyone wanted to grow up and be successful and become wealthy. And I think Hayek makes a, a good point with his, with his quote. The point is, uh, a flat tax would be easy to administer. It would be fair. It would be progressive for those who need to use that term. It would allow us to keep more money in the private sector. So entrepreneurs and people who wanted to expand businesses and grow opportunities uh, would have that opportunity because there would be more uh, investment dollars. What we want in this country is we want a growing economy, we want a competitive economy, we want opportunity for all and favoritism for none. And the flat tax is the best option for that. Thank you very much. Thank you, Becky. George, thank you. Uh, maybe somebody can come here to help me turn this on. It doesn't seem to be going on. Uh, let me go ahead and begin. Thank you all. Uh, thank you, the Federal Society, the Adam Smith Society, and the Darden uh, Business and Public Policy Club for, thank you, um, for uh, uh, sponsoring this event and inviting me to participate. And thank you especially to the distinguished other panelists here uh, today. Um, uh, like uh, uh, Mary Margaret, uh, this is a topic that's very uh, close to my heart. Um, uh, in addition to time I've spent as a practitioner, as an academic, thinking about tax reform, form, I have had the privilege of working uh, on congressional staffs twice when tax reform was 
uh, uh, debated very closely once during the mid-80s in the years leading up to the 1986 Tax Reform Act, which was the last time that we've had a major tax reform in this country, and then again in the mid-2000s when there was a very serious consideration of many of these same issues. Um, we have had over the years in this country a lot of interest in a national sales tax uh, dating back most prominently to the period in World War I and also again during the years leading up to and including the early part of World War II. Um, and then uh, the idea again surfaced sometime in the 1990s and basically has remained with us ever since in the public eye. Uh, the congressman didn't mention that the bill that he has sponsored has, by my count, 72 co-sponsors right now, including uh, Mr. Brady, who is the new incoming chair of the uh, uh, Ways and Means Committee. Um, in my few moments, I'm going to just talk briefly about what I think is the single most important issue uh, about the fair tax, which is what tax rate would be needed to, uh, to finance the needs of the country which the tax proposal would uh, do. I should mention that uh, the congressman mentioned there would be a 23% tax rate. It would repeal all of the income taxes, all of the payroll taxes, and the estate and gift tax. And in addition to that, um, he didn't mention that to address the potential regressive nature of the tax, it would grant to every household in the country, rich or poor, uh, a rebate uh, equal to, or a cash grant, equal to the tax on a poverty level of spending each year, and it would be sent out in monthly checks. So um, uh, one first point I need to do is to, to, to clarify a point, a very common misunderstanding. The bill does include a 23% tax rate, but that is what is known as a tax-inclusive rate. And to illustrate what exactly that means, we might imagine a purchase of $10 that you buy at the store, and you're told to pay $3 in sales tax as a result of that. And the question is, what is the rate of tax you're paying in that transaction? Well, one way of looking at it is to say, well, I'm paying $3 in tax. The purchase price without the tax is $10. Therefore, it's a 30% tax rate. And that would be what we refer to as a tax-exclusive rate. Another way of say, analyze, analyzing the same thing is to say you're paying a $3 tax. The amount that I'm, total amount I'm paying, the purchase price plus the tax is $13, and therefore 3 as a fraction of 13 is 23%, which is the tax-inclusive rate, okay? Now, in fact, most of us think about sales tax rates, and in fact, most of the states deal with sales tax rates in a tax-exclusive manner. So just as a matter of clarification, we might want to be clear in our minds that a 23% tax-inclusive rate is the equivalent of what we commonly think of as a 30% tax rate, okay? But having said that, it remains the question, would a 30% tax rate be adequate to finance the repeal of all of these other taxes. I, I might mention, just because um, Becky mentioned the point, I'm not uh, in this situation uh, defending the size of government. I think that is a fair fight for another day. But I do think that as a matter of um, 
analytics, uh, we need to constrain ourselves to some common baseline if we're trying to compare tax plans. A lot of tax plans could, could look awfully well, good compared to the current one if we can assume we're only going to collect half as much as we do, a third of much as we do, and so forth. And indeed, the two books that uh, the congressman mentions uh, is very explicit on this and very straight and says we need to figure out the rate on a revenue neutral basis. And so I'm uh, raising essentially that same question. Well, in fact, this question was raised and has been raised uh, previously. And so in 2005, uh, President Bush appointed a tax reform panel to come up with specific tax reform ideas. Um, and because the president, as well as Speaker Hastert, as well as other prominent leaders at the time, were very high on the fair tax, uh, they essentially instructed the panel to analyze the fair tax, which it did. And among other things, the panelists figured out how much of a tax rate would be necessary to make it a revenue neutral change. Okay, so the first estimate they came up with was simply the, the rate that would be necessary to replace uh, the income tax and pay for these cash grants that would be going to every household in the country. And they came up with an estimate of 34%, which is only slightly higher than the 30% rate. Uh, on the other hand, they did point out that there isn't any state or any country in the world that has a rate anywhere near this high. They, in, they interviewed various state tax administrators who indicated that there, they feared there would be substantial compliance uh, problems with a rate at 34%. At that point, the panel uh, uh, economists and uh, lawyers went back and did a re-estimate because their 34% estimate was assumed the same degree of non-compliance as we have in the current income tax system. And as the congressman mentioned, the current income tax system uh, benefits from the fact that there are many recurring transactions between the same parties the most obvious example being the payment of wages and salaries by an employer to an employee that enables the collection of tax through mechanisms involving withholding and independent reporting. Um, the fair tax, of course, would not have those mechanisms. And as a result of that, it would rely on a sector that many studies have shown has proven to be, in general, the least compliant sector in the country right now. Um, the congressman mentions uh, uh, the, the fact that Walmart is not going to cheat, and I'm certainly not going to debate him on that point. I think one thing to think about, though, is that for one thing, you all know how much increasingly there is a consumption of goods and services in a more informal way. The internet essentially has opened up a whole world of potential transactions rather than going strictly into the big box store. And in addition to that, of course, if the tax savings is large enough, you can imagine the incentive effect to create uh, 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 transactions that are outside of, if you will, the Walmart type of transaction. 
In any event, the, the, uh, and the panelists went back and recalculated what the rate would be if the assumption was that the non-compliance rate would be about 30%. That's still considerably less than the current studies show for that sector under current law, which is about 50%. But they went back and they made that analysis and they determined that the tax rate in that situation would need to be 49%. They then went back and made another re-estimate. Now here you have to understand that the tax base that would be taxed under the fair tax proposal is a very comprehensive, uh, broad array of goods and services. It's not simply taxing all the food, clothing, prescription drugs, many of items that are not taxed in many states, but it also would include the taxation of many consumer durables. So it would be include your automobile, and importantly, your home would be subject to sales tax when you pay, when you purchase a home. In addition to that, it would tax virtually every service imaginable. So it wouldn't simply be the amount you pay at the barbershop or the beauty parlor, but it would be tax on the rent that you pay for the housing services that you have the tax, the tax on the, uh, the doctor's fees that you pay, the tax to the lawyer, the tax to the insurance broker for the insurance service, and the tax to the fin for financial services that you would have. Now this last item many people overlook because a lot of times you don't see an explicit fee in the financial services. The, the cost is embedded into the price of the product that you're acquiring. But just a moment's thought, you realize how profitable many banks and financial institutions are, and you realize surely they must be receiving a, a more than adequate compensation for the services that they're providing, and they are. And so under the bill, you would have to figure out how much is the fee that you're paying for the financial services, and then of course you'd have to pay tax on that fee. In addition to all of that, as um, Becky mentioned, the bill would tax government services, the household's consumption of government services. And so included in the tax base would be um, uh, uh, benefits obtained by households from federal, state, and local governments for national defense, homeland security, clean air and water, uh, law enforcement and courts, the infrastructure, and on and on and on, okay? Um, the panelists, obviously, when they took a look at this, they said, you know, how realistic is it that the tax base could actually be applied to all of these items? Uh, they noticed, for example, that this base is way beyond anything that we see in any state or any country, and they took that as an instructive indication of what might actually be permissible, because many of those jurisdictions have been in dire need of revenue and have been trying to expand their base as much as they can, and yet none of them have even approached the base that is in the bill. So they went back and said, let's suppose that the tax base ultimately that's enacted is only the median size base that we see actually see among the states. And they re reached that calculation and they came up with a figure of an 89% tax rate that would be required. Now, having said that, of course, you notice that this 89% tax would only play, pay to replace the income tax and pay for the cash grants. 
So if you extend the analysis even further to offset the cost of all of the payroll taxes, you end up with a rate that would be about two-thirds higher than that, or well over 100% tax rate, okay? Now, obviously, there's a vicious cycle aspect to all of this because the higher the rate, the greater the amount of noncompliance we could expect, the greater resistance to expanding the base, um, the larger the cash grants that would have to be paid, and therefore all of that would turn into, again, more pressure for even a higher tax rate. Um, finally, the panel also looked at the cash grant program and concluded that it would be by far the largest entitlement program in the history of America. And they also indicated that far from eliminating something like the tax agency out of our lives to administer this bill, there actually would need to be two major administrative structures, one to collect the tax and one to administer these cash grants. Well, bottom line is the panel, uh, not surprisingly, could not recommend the fair tax as a viable option for this country. My own personal sense is that if Congress went in that direction, it would have a much lower tax rate and that it would end up being merely a supplement for existing taxes. I don't understand either the supporters or opponents of the proposal to be in favor of that kind of a change. Let me leave you... Um, uh, uh, with just a couple of notes of optimism, if you will. Um, I do think that the Congress, uh, beginning in 2017, is going to be taking up in a very serious way the issue of major tax reform. I think this is true no matter who is elected president next year, and I think it's particularly true if Mr. Ryan, our current Speaker of the House, remains Speaker in the, uh, the next Congress, uh, given his background and interest in these and, and knowledge of these issues, I just think that it's going to be seriously taken up. And for that reason, I would certainly strongly encourage all of you as much as possible to become involved in the debate. There's always a need for more smart and engaged persons who are willing and able to do the hard work to examine and analyze and ultimately communicate the reform options to the public. Um, if you are inclined, as you sit here, to favor a tax system that is more tilted towards consumption than our current one, and in, in the same process that would promote growth, simplify the law, reduce the intrusion of the tax agency in our lives, and be as or more fair than the current system, my message to you is there are options out there including the two that the tax panel ultimately did recommend in 2005. I personally attribute some of the disturbing developments that we have seen during the presidential campaign to simply the failure to communicate good information to the public. Without that information, it's easy to understand how they can become confused and misled, and ultimately they become cynical about our national leaders and this wonderful country that we have. Um, I don't think that this serves anyone's policy interest, and I think it the cynicism clearly harms uh, the country. Um, in the terms of tax reform, there does exist a lot of good information um, and analysis that has been done. 
And your goal, if you were to become deeply involved, is to find and understand that information and then ultimately communicate it to allow a more enlightened electorate in the future. Um, obviously, your presence here uh, this Friday afternoon already speaks volumes of your commitment and interest in this area, and I just strongly encourage you to continue it. Thank you all very much. So thank you all for uh, commenting. I wanted to open the floor for questions. Um, hopefully you are intrigued uh, and are thinking about this. I will echo, maybe it's the teacher in us, uh, that uh, I believe this is an issue for your generation and it's really important that you get involved in this. These decisions will be made. So as the last time we did something like this, we talked about corporate tax reform and it happened. I think most of you weren't born. <laughs> According, because I've asked that question in my class and nobody remembers 1987 because they weren't born yet. So it takes, once it happens, it may not come back again for a while. This is your opportunity your generation. It's your opportunity to make a difference. And I would ask you to think about the questions you have for your esteemed panel. Think about how you might make that difference. The floor is open. There's one in the back. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, let me just uh, say that um, uh, all of the Republican plan, uh, all the Republican candidates uh, came to the Tax Foundation uh, and asked us to model their tax plans uh, long before they went live with them, before they released them publicly. So we had the opportunity to work with all of them, except Donald Trump, I would point out. Um, <laughs> no, no, but I, here's a backstory to that. They actually did come to, okay, I'm just talking out of school now. Um, they did come to us and ask if, if we would model their plan. We said yes. And they came back and they said, well, but we'd like you to sign a non-disclosure agreement first. We said, no. <laughs> We're not going to do that. What is this, like, you know, prenuptial agreement? Um, well, he does that, you know. So and, and we said, <laughs> third time, you know. So, but we've made a deal with all of the candidates that we would work with them in private, um, confidentially, uh, to mo model their plans and score them before they go live. And that way they could test drive them, if you will. And in many cases, uh, some, some, many cases, we ran their, mo uh, their plans 30 or 40 different times in order to get it to where they want it to be. The exciting thing is to see how different they really are. And they've handled these different challenges all very differently. They have all attacked uh, credits and deductions, but in different ways. For the most part, they have eliminated most of the deductions, except for the charitable deduction and, it's to some extent, the mortgage interest deduction. They have all avoided, to some degree, taking on some of the, what you might call, social policy in the tax code, the earned income tax credit and uh, the child credit. This is one of the basic problems of the current tax system. It is so incredibly progressive 
meaning that we have, over the last 25 years in particular, and I played a part of this in 1986, uh, in creating these refundable tax credits that are so generous to low-income people that in order to eliminate them, you'd essentially raise taxes on the poor. And now, the, the tax system is so progressive toward uh, the rich paying a greater share of the burden that to lower rates automatically cuts taxes for the rich. Now, this is a conundrum to, for most, most candidates. No one wants to raise taxes on the poor or cut taxes on the rich. That's a bad bumper sticker. Um, so they all attack this pro problem a little differently. Uh, some have kept the credits and the uh, child credit in the ITC. In particular, even Rand Paul. He wanted to eliminate everything. And then he saw the distributional tables after we ran the model. He said, oh, God, uh, I can't sell that. Here's the libertarian, right? And so he put those back in. And he had to raise his rate. He originally wanted a 14% single rate, and he had to raise it to 14.5% in order for us to put those back in so his distributional tables didn't look so bad. But all of them have really tried to eliminate as much of the junk as possible. Uh, now, some of that's going to be kind of painful, but you, you, you trade that off against a, a lower rate. You know, Dick Armey, former Speaker of the House, who used to be a big flat tax advocate and used to debate this fair tax, flat tax thing, said, you know, I, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to die. Uh, and so I want to lower rates, but I don't want to lose up some of my deductions. And so those are the trade-offs that you have to make. And some of these things you want to keep in a tax system uh, no matter what it is, but many of the things that we have, as the congressman and others have talked about, are just social policy or industrial policy that have been infused into the tax code in order to make it a simple, neutral system, we have to eliminate them and trade them off for lower rates. And that's what a lot of the candidates do. I should say, go to the Tax Foundation website, taxfoundation.org. We have a three-page summary of all the plans. We've analyzed them all on an apples-to-apples basis. You can, you can see the, all the details. Um, we know these plans as well as anybody because we actually know them better than some of the candidates. Because um, we've modeled them all. And uh, it's really, this is an exciting time. Never. In my lifetime, we've seen so many presidential candidates with fully developed, fully detailed, fully vetted plans as we have today. So if you're interested in tax reform, this is an exciting time because we've never had so many choices to, to, to look at and compare on an apples-to-apples -apples basis. Buzz? Well, let me say, first of all, that the Tax Foundation has a dynamic uh, model. The Heritage Foundation also has a dynamic model. And over the course of the last 10 or 15 years that we've used these models to, uh, the whole idea is to show, particularly in the United States, you might have done international work, uh, Scott, I don't think Heritage has, to show when you make some changes, what is the behavioral change that occurs. That's quite different from static scoring, which basically says people will continue to act the same way no matter what you do to the tax code. 
we know that's not human nature and the dynamic scoring uh, enables you to sort through that. Some governors have used it in this country. Um, I think Kasich has, I don't agree with all that he's done, but I think he, he actually, uh, he wanted to reduce the income taxes on the people. And so he looked at, well, what could he do to make sure that he was able to achieve his goals and reduce the income taxes on people. Brown back in uh, Kansas has, has done a similar thing. So there are examples of governors who ha have done this. In terms of what's going on in the world, I really encourage you to take a look at the Index of Economic Freedom. It, it, it measures more things than just tax codes, uh, but in the countries that went to a flat tax, they saw an immediate uh, change in, uh, in, the, in economic activity, but also revenue to the government. And we actually saw that in the United States when Ronald Reagan was president and he reduced uh, individual taxes. Uh, much to my chagrin, although he said this would happen, revenue to the government increased. And, and what it demonstrates to you is that when you do, uh, when you do take these uh, tax policies and you adjust them so that people and businesses uh, see a greater benefit to their earnings, they, the revenues go up, either income to individuals because they're willing to work harder because they get to keep more of their own money, and same thing with corporations. George? Um, I'd like to just modify something that Becky said. Uh, as the congressman indicated, I did used to head the Joint Committee on Taxation, and right or wrong, they are the official scorekeeper for Congress. Um, uh, the concept of static estimates does take into account behavioral change. So the classic example of that is if you were to reduce, say, the capital gains rate by five percentage points, what would you expect to happen? And the economists in the committee assume, quite correctly, that it should, in fact, increase the number of realizations because of the lower rate. And so they're taking now into account both the effect of the lower rate, but with the larger base, because there are going to be larger amounts of gains that are realized. Conversely, you raise the tax, you're going to be reducing the amount of, and so you'd have to figure out the offset of all of that. So, and, and they take into account behavioral uh, effects uh, like that all throughout the, the estimates. So every estimate has some, almost every estimate has some uh, important behavioral effect that has to be estimated in some way, and they try to do, obviously, the best they can given the state of knowledge. What static, so-called static estimates don't do is that they don't assume the tax change will have an effect on macroeconomic factors. And the reason for that simply is that virtually every bill that is being estimated is too small to produce any kind of a meaningful estimate on the, 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 the kind of the development and growth of the economy writ large. Now, that isn't true, obviously, for major tax reform proposals. So it certainly would make sense, and I think it does make sense, uh, to have dynamic models attempt to estimate the consequences, including the change to macroeconomic factors of a major tax reform proposal. Now, having said that as a conceptual matter, which I completely agree with, there's obviously a very technical, challenging issue of what kind of assumptions do you make 
of how the economy writ large is going to react. It's hard enough to imagine on a micro level how individual people will change their individual behaviors, but to kind of then try to aggregate all of that and think of the macroeconomic uh, uh, consequences are very challenging. Obviously, there are models that do that, very respectable models. Uh, the CBO, when they have done analyses of these, they often have laid out the results of eight or ten different models. And what jumps out at you is they don't all say the same thing. So, you know, not surprisingly, I guess. But with, so all, then, with all due respect, if I can jump in, they all don't point in different directions. One of the, there's, there's an argument against, the, the traditional argument against dynamic scoring is, oh, well, we got, you know, we all have different opinions, we all have different assumptions, and gee, you know, we can't decide. You know, uh, the old song about if you lay uh, four economists end to end, they point in all directions. Um, the models all tend to point in the same direction. So if you have a big change, let's say, in the capital gains rate, all the models will at least point in a positive direction. They will show that the economy will move positively in terms of, of economic growth. Likewise, if you were to raise the capital gains rate, all of these models would show that it sufficiently increases the cost of capital such that it will lower the amount of capital in, in the economy and thus lower growth. So all the models at least point in the same direction. Yes, are they off by some degree? Yes. Uh, when, when we modeled, the uh, Dave Camp, who was the former chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, put forward a very substantive tax reform plan two years ago. Uh, the Joint Committee on Taxation modeled it with their dynamic models, plural. They had two of them. We modeled it with ours. Um, theirs all showed the, the Camp plan would produce a very small amount of growth over a decade or so. Our model produced a, a result showing a similar thing, but ours was at the lower end of their, their, um, of their range. All the models showed the same thing. So we can use these tools to give members of Congress more information so that they can make, make smarter decisions. If you only use a static uh, score, you don't give them the information to make smart decisions. They make dumb decisions because these static scores all, all treat tax policy the same. Uh, it's just a, an, an, an exercise in, in mathematics. And, and tax changes ought to be an exercise in ec economics because they do affect the economy. And no economist will tell you that uh, taxes don't affect the economy. I appreciate the endorsement that if you give us good information, we won't make dumb decisions. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll take that. We I, try I, I the best that. we can. But you know, to the presidential <laughs> candidate's credit, we're talking about big ideas big here. Ideas. There just aren't that many examples of real-world uh, changes in big ideas. Do look at former Soviet uh, uh, bloc countries. Look at Estonia. Look at Latvia. Look at Lithuania. Don't look, look, at, at look at Ireland. Ukraine, look at Georgia. And on the corporate side, Look at Ireland. Ireland's the, that's the biggest uh, story in the last decade in corporate taxation, and they've got a lot of other problems. It wasn't the silver bullet, nor is tax policy in general, uh, but it made a big uh, made a big impact on on behavior. Yes. They, you can see why we didn't get a good score while George was running the Joint Tax <laughs> Committee. You see that uh, now. I'd, I'd, tell you two, uh, I'd tell you two things, and it's what I love about the fair tax as a, as a, as a proposal. I don't care at the end of the day uh, what the rate is. I, I dispute uh, the joint, uh, I, I dispute the Bush administration's calculations. Uh, uh, it's worth noting that at the end of the day, this is George Bush with a Republican-controlled House and a Republican-controlled Senate, and he did nothing right. on fundamental tax reform. Don't tell me you're putting together a serious panel that's going to do serious work, that's going to produce a serious proposal, 
and the two proposals that they, that they reached were still nibbling around the edges proposals and they did nothing, nothing with the largest tax that 80% of American families pay. I don't, I don't care about rich people in this country. I'm not trying to make sure that you can move from the super rich to the ultra rich. I'm trying to make sure you can move from the bottom to the middle to the top. And if you don't deal with the biggest tax that 80% of American families pay, you're doing nothing to make that change. Number two, I don't dispute what George said about how to move a viable tax proposal. Best thing I can do as a congressman is to tell you I'm cutting corporate personal income tax to zero and Walmart's going to pay it all, right? You're, you're going to pay zero. It's just going to be Walmart. But corporations don't pay taxes. They either pay their employees less, they charge their consumers more, or they return less to holders of capital. They don't pay taxes. So what George has laid out here, and it's critically important for Adam Smith and, and the Federalist Society, is that George's point is, by his calculations, if the entire burden of funding government fell on the American consumer, who, by most uh, estimates, uh, when we're having a traditional time, spends 100% of everything they earn, if the entire tax burden of the, of the federal government fell on the American consumer, the tax rate would be upwards of 100%. We need to know that, and we need to feel that. The best way to achieve tax reform is to hide tax incidents. I don't want to hide tax incidents. I don't care what the size and scope of government is as an American. I care as a, as a conservative and as a Republican. But if everybody has skin in the game, if everybody has skin in the game, we're going to get to the right decision on the size and scope uh, of, of government. Uh, there is no other taxpayer in America but the American consumer. It's the only one. And whatever the rate has to be to fund government, that's what the rate has to be to fund government. I, 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 I fault my liberal colleagues for saying, you know what, I don't care about running up uh, the debt. Uh, the rich are going to have to pay for that one day. Nonsense. When we hit a debt crisis, it's the poor who get crushed uh, in a debt uh, crisis. Uh, if, you, if you're a liberal and you're not confronting uh, federal spending today, uh, it's, it's your constituency that's going to suffer. And to my Republican friends who don't mind running up the debt but don't want to raise taxes, I say nonsense. You're raising taxes with interest. You're just not doing it on today's voters. You're doing it on voters uh, that don't have a chance uh, uh, to vote yet, uh, which I would argue is not only immoral, it's cowardly. Uh, we, we have to confront that. And I encourage, uh, I encourage you, no matter where you sit on that aisle, uh, a dollar's worth of debt is a dollar's worth of tax hike or a dollar's worth of benefit, just not on people you have to look in the eye and tell the truth to today. Can I just say, we just modeled the fair tax in a similar fashion, and um, we found similar rates to what they found. Um, we used a seven, our, our tax base was 78% of GDP, and we found that you need a tax-exclusive rate of 40%, with, and that's assuming no avoidance. And so we didn't go through all that exercise. I, I do think that's an impractical. Let me just finish on this point. The whole point of tax reform is to move toward a consumption base, and there are many ways that you can do it. And believe it or not, and it, a lot of people, when they think consumption, they think sales tax, value-added tax, or something. The flat tax is a consumption tax yes, it because is. it doesn't tax returns to savings uh, or investment. Um, there's also a, a cash flow tax that have been talked about. There's others who have proposed an X tax, which is similar to a flat tax to have graduated rates and have value added tax. Mm -hmm. There are different ways you can get to a consumption tax. 
And I think the most complicated and messy way is to go to a fair tax. And there are other ways that you can get to a, cons a consumption tax that fit within our current conception. And uh, that's where we need to go. But the point is to, to eliminate the double taxation of savings and investment. And that's, that gives you toward your, your goal. Well, everybody thinks about the flat tax and think about, well, the rate. Well, it's a single rate system. But the idea is to have a flat base. So it's really about your base, the, the fair tax flat base. It's a single, it's the entire economy, essentially. And, and you can get there through the flat tax as well, because what you're doing is you're, you're not taxing uh, personal savings or investment. And on the, on the uh, business side, you're allowing full uh, expensing for business investment. And you're eliminating the double taxation of uh, business profits by either um, exempting you know, the, the tax on, on dividends or not taxing dividends in, in capital gains. So there you can get to a consumption base in different ways. Um, it's a little more, I, I think it's more challenging to do it through a fair tax, but uh, you can get there in different ways, and economists have done this. They have different names, the USA tax, I mean. Um, you, you follow for, that? For, I, I want to tax you on everything you spend. But by definition, everything you spend, uh, if I take that out of your income, what's left is everything you saved. Yeah. So if Scott gives you a deduction for everything you saved, then you're only being taxed by his tax on everything you spend, which is the same thing I'm taxing on my tax, which is why rates can't be wildly disparate uh, between two proposals that are going after the exact same, uh, uh, the exact same challenge. The, the difference is that Scott's still going to know where you make your money and how you make it. And Scott's not going to be able to abolish the home mortgage introduction, and he's not going to be able to abolish the Look, health insurance you are not, and He's not going to be able to go after the whole, those things. The, the, nobody the, has whole, the, premise, to go the whole premise behind the, the fair I'm tax is to eliminate the IRA. <laughs> <laughs> well, the whole premise behind the fair tax, and this is a great selling point, is to get rid of the IRS. Okay, we're going to have a fair tax collection service. And it's going to come after you to make sure that you don't have uh, uh, avoidance, you don't have cheating, you, you're making sure that, that Walmart and everybody else is going to be paying, and uh, it, it's going to be chasing down every mom-and-pop grocer in America yep. uh, in order to collect it. You're going to have somebody, and Which in, order, in order to have... Which the IRS today. Just <laughs> to be clear, the IRS and, and this, will not come this, after this you as a mom-and-pop company. This okay. rebate thing. I'm going to call here's time. I'm else. officially being a moderator in a debate now. Well, let me just... And the prebate... That is the role of the moderator, and I would like to leave... <laughs> the last two uh, remarks to our panelists on the left as they close us out because I see food and I think people are probably pretty hungry right now. So okay, well, last, last comments. I'll be brief and then I'll, I'll turn it over to George. Uh, I did bring some papers from my colleague uh, Curtis DeBay who uh, wrote a paper, A Flat Consumption Tax Would Be Fair and Efficient. So please come and get one of these. Uh, let me say that... Um, uh, I think that uh, I'd love to have the congressman's zeal uh, applied to the, to the flat tax because I do think that the uh, American people, writ large, actually can understand the, the flat tax. And, you know, if you, if you want to begin with a tax reform that the American people will accept, uh, pick one where they can see that it's going to be 15, 10, 17 percent of their income, and that's it. Uh, then you have a, a, a mortgage deduction, maybe for the average mortgage in America, instead of on the, uh, as, as large as it is now. 
and a charitable deduction that's more reasonable based on what the average American income is. I think that these are the kinds of reforms that you can actually achieve right away, and then we'll let the congressman and his team work on lowering that uh, total tax rate. But I will say, to his point, it is important that every American participate in paying taxes to the national government. Absolutely. Because it is the national government whose primary responsibility is to make sure that they are defended and safe and secure in their homes. And if you end up with a system where uh, too many consumers are not in the tax system, all they're interested in is what can they get from the federal government instead of what is the federal government doing that they don't need to do. Let's get the spending down. So thank you very much for allowing me to be here. George? Thank you. Well, I know it's Miller time, so I'm not going to hold you much longer. <laughs> um, but I, I do want to just add one point, which is I, I basically agree with, um, I think, what Scott was trying to urge you. Uh, there are multiple ways to tax essentially the same base, uh, the fair tax, the flat tax, the uh, value-added tax, uh, both the credit invoice and the subtraction method and others. It is important to see the differences in these uh, and to figure out which ones are more workable than others. Uh, this isn't a completely hypothetical concern. We had exactly this debate during the period from 1994 to 2000. The House in 1994 went Republican for the first time in 40 years. The chairman of the Ways and Means Committee was a very distinguished conservative Republican, Bill Archer from Texas. The, the House uh, uh, Majority Leader, the second to the Speaker, was another a distinguished conservative Republican from Texas, Dick Armey. They both wanted a consumption tax. They both wanted major reform of the tax system. And they couldn't get together on that point. And as a result of that, there was no progress made in that entire period. Now, nothing came out of the House. It isn't a question of, oh, Bill Clinton was president and he would have vetoed it. Nothing came out of the House. Nothing came out of the Ways and Means Committee, let alone the House. So it's important to understand the options and then to figure out which ones work and which ones don't and coalesce around the ones that work. Well done. Thank you. And on that, we would like to encourage you to use your innovation, right? You are the ones who are going to be innovating. You're going and thinking about, we were talked about this earlier, um, we'd like you to use that massive brain power that you have that you, People are going to Google, to law firms coming up with very creative, structured deals. Well, maybe we could apply some of that innovation that's sitting in that space back there to thinking about how to create better corporate policies. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.